Our current uh, preaching series, Are We There Yet? We're almost at the end, so I guess we're almost there. And uh, getting from here to there, wherever there is, right? This series has been based on the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and specifically we are considering what it is that we can learn from this biblical account, from their journey that will help us as individuals and us as a church to successfully navigate the journey from where we currently are to where God may be leading us. And so we believe that embracing these necessities will not only help us get there, but also uh, make the journey along the way more beneficial as well. So just quickly, we started with godly discontentment, and we said change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Secondly, we looked at committed leadership, and we said we need leaders on every level that are humble, prepared, secure, empowered, and godly, looking at the life of Moses. We talked about a proper perspective, choosing to see through the eyes of God and His promises rather than through human eyes and circumstances. Last week, we talked about unwavering obedience, and we said a genuine relationship with God is rooted in unwavering obedience to Him. Today, we're going to talk about complete trust. Complete trust. John invited his mother over for dinner, and during the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate, Julie, was. She had long been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate, and this only made her more curious. Over the course of the evening, while watching the two interact, she started to wonder if there was more between John and the roommate than met the eye. Reading his mom's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, but Julie and I are just roommates. Trust me. About a week later, Julie came to John and said, Ever since your mother came to dinner, I can't find my grandmother's antique silver gravy ladle. You don't suppose she took it, do you? John said, Well, I doubt it, but I'll email her just to be sure. So he just sat down and wrote, Dear Mom, I'm not saying you did take the gravy ladle from my house, and I'm not saying you did not take the gravy ladle. But the fact remains that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Later that day, John received an email response from his mom, which read, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Julie, and I'm not saying that you do not sleep with Julie. But the fact remains that if Julie was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. Trust. Trust. Trust is critically important to journeying from where we presently are as individuals and as a church to where God is leading us. And complete trust is rooted in our awareness that we are not able to make the journey without God's help. We can't do this without Him. We can't do it on our own. And so we must work together with Him in complete trust. And so today's necessity is found in Exodus chapter 14, and we're just going to read verse 31, and it says this, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. So let's just kind of walk through what leads to this particular verse of this moment where the Israelites are putting their trust in God. Let's start with circling back. 
after a significant amount of drama and activity, plagues, miracles, the deaths of the eldest sons in Egypt, the Israelites have finally been given permission to leave Egypt. And so they've left. Egypt is behind them. The promised land is before them. They're far enough into the journey, even though it's only been a short time, that they can no longer see Egypt. It's, it's gone. It's, it's the past. And even though they're not yet, there yet, there's an excitement in the camp for all that has already happened up to this moment. They're on their way. They're no longer slaves. They're out. Can you believe it? We're on our way. Now, we've repeatedly referenced the purpose of this long wilderness journey, of how amazing it is that a journey that could have been completed in approximately 40 days takes 40 years to complete, and we keep coming back to the point that the purpose of this journey is not just to get them from here to there, but the purpose of the journey is to make them the people of God, so that when they are there, they can function and live as the people of God. And so if they're going to truly become the people of God, then they will need to learn what it means to put their trust in Him. You can't be the people of God if you don't trust Him. And so the most important method of learning trust is to be placed in a situation where you are helpless and you desperately need God to intervene and act on your behalf. And so God decided to create what I would call a trust-building opportunity early into the journey to the promised land. And so if you're looking closely earlier in the chapter, you'll see that in order for this trust-building opportunity to have maximum impact, maximum benefit, the Israelites need to turn around and go back towards Egypt. They have to go back in that direction. They need to be placed in a position where they are vulnerable. And so God said to Moses, he said, Moses, turn around. Turn back. Change direction. That doesn't make sense in human terms. We just went through all that to get out of there. We're heading over there. It doesn't make sense putting us back in Egyptian territory, putting us back where not only we can see Egypt, but they can see us and all the potential harm that goes with it. This does not make sense, but God says, Moses, go back. You got to go back. It says that God wants Pharaoh to think that the Israelites are lost, that they're confused that they're wandering aimlessly in the desert, walking in circles because somehow their divine help has run out. Oh, God got them out, but now they're out there on their own and they have no idea what they're doing. And look at them, they're right back where they started. Isn't this great? But the truth is, the opposite's happening. God is in control of this. He's leading them. And he's about to show his authority over the enemy So that Israel will learn to put complete trust in him. He wants to use the enemy of Egypt for his glory, he says. What, in the eyes of the Egyptians? No, in the eyes of his people. 
He wants to build their trust. And Pharaoh, like a fish chasing a lure, is being pulled in. Pharaoh told him he could leave. But he and the officials were told have changed their minds. God has hardened their hearts. And they start asking questions like, what have we done? You know, we're so stupid. Like, what, what have we done? These, we had almost a million slaves that did all our stuff and now they're gone. Like, you know, are we out of our minds? What have we done? And they decide that they're going to go after the Israelites and bring them back. Secondly, crying out. Our text provides us with the magnitude of the threat of the Egyptian army. This is no small contingent that comes out into the desert. Pharaoh himself. It tells us that he sends 600 of his best chariots. And it's funny, it says, and as well, he sent all the rest. (laughs) I don't know why they just didn't say he sent all his chariots. But the writer is trying to help us see the magnitude. There's 600, you know, 2018 top of the line chariots that are rolling out. And then all the other ones, they're rolling out too. And all of the, uh, you know, officers that that are a part of the chariots, and in Egyptian chariots, typically there were two people in every one of them. And then it says, they sent out all of Pharaoh's horses, and all of Pharaoh's horsemen. And then it says, and all of his troops. So basically, anything and everything that was associated with the armies of Egypt is being sent after these people. And so we see here the significance of what's going to happen once they get there. So we're told Pharaoh's army pursued the Israelites and caught them. They're catching up to them. And the Israelites are trapped between this massive, intimidating army and the Red Sea. Now, let's not lose the fact that the only reason they're there and trapped is because God said, go back, right? If God had left well enough alone and kept going, this wouldn't be happening. And so, there are three responses that are recorded here. First is the people themselves. They looked up, and they saw the army closing in on them and says, they're terrified. Well, of course they are. They're just sitting ducks. They're terrified. And it says they started to cry out to the Lord. But the army keeps coming. And so because the army keeps coming, the crying out to the Lord for help quickly shifts from crying out to the Lord to questioning. To begin to focus now on Moses. And they start asking him questions. So uh, Moses, tell us. Like, was there not enough graves in Egypt? little bit of sarcasm here, right? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? What have you done? What have you done by bringing us here? Didn't we tell you back in Egypt to leave us alone? I mean, who doesn't love a, I told you so, right? I mean, come on. Who hasn't wanted to put the right hand of fellowship right in the kisser on someone who says, I told you so? I mean, that's the most frustrating thing ever. 
Well, didn't we tell you back in Egypt to leave us alone? It would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt, to serve in Egypt, than to die in the desert. That's one reply. The second reply was Moses. He says, listen, settle down. It's all good. Don't be afraid. (laughs) How'd that work with your kids, by the way? Middle of the night, bad dream. I said that to Liz once. Jesus is with you, honey. It's okay. She goes, well, you stay here with Jesus. I'm going with mommy. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't really work when we say calm down. Don't tell me to calm down, right? I mean, nothing infuriates a person who's not calm more than telling them to get calm. Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Take your position and be still. Don't do anything. Just be there. God will fight for you. You will see the victory that God will bring to you. There will be victory. There won't be defeat. So you have one group who's crying out to God and then complaining because, you know, they've been led into this. And then you have another group who says, another person says, calm down and just don't do anything. Let God do his work. And then you have God's reply. And God says, Moses, why are you crying out to me? Take action. Raise your staff. Remember your staff? It represents my power and my authority. Yeah, it's a wooden stick, but remember when I empowered you, I showed you that that staff was a sign and a symbol of my power in your life and your leadership. And he says, like, why are you crying out? Do something, man. I already gave you what you need. Raise it it up over the water. And divide the water so the Israelites can walk on dry land. And Moses is probably thinking, yeah, I never really thought of that. And then it says, the angel of the Lord who was leading them from the front went behind them, between them and the enemy. And then the cloud and the pillar of fire, which was the symbolic of the presence of God, also moved from the front to the back, providing this buffer between them and the enemy, and it says that all the enemy could see was darkness, but, but they were on the side with, with the light. And so, yes, God was leading them. Yes, God is going to intervene to help them. But they needed to be a part of it with God. They had a part to play. They needed to act. Not in their own strength, not in their own wisdom, but in the power that God had already given them. And so as Moses held his staff over the waters, and I just love this verse, it says, God drove back the waters with a strong east wind, forming walls on each side. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. That wind here is the word that is used for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Ruach. And it says that the Ruach blew in from the east, which whenever there's an east wind, that is a, a, you know, that is a punishment wind. God is going to deliver the Israelites, but he's going to punish the enemies here. And as the Spirit hovers over the waters, as he did in creation... The, the water opens up and land emerges. We've seen this story before back in Genesis. The land emerges. 
God's spirit is going to bring victory to God's people and judgment on his enemies, but they're going to have to work in tandem with the spirit of God. Thirdly, crossing over. So the Israelites stepped into the opening in the water. And they began crossing on dry land to the other side. And the Egyptians followed them into the opening. And it says God threw them into confusion and the wheels started coming off their chariots. I mean, they don't make them like they used to, right? These 600 brand new ones and the wheels are coming off. They can't drive them anymore. And it says that even the Egyptians recognized and said, God is fighting for Israel. God's fighting for Israel. And he said, let's get out of here. This was a bad idea. Let's get out of here. And then the Lord told Moses to stretch out his hand with the staff again. And when he did, the sea went back and covered those who were in the opening. And none who were in the opening survived. Israel, in the meantime, had crossed safely. And here they are. They're standing on the other side. When I read this, I'm reminded of that chorus that we sing, right? Standing on this mountaintop, seeing how far we've come, is that moment of reflection that you can see the bigger picture and you're amazed at how far you've come and what God has done. And here they're having this moment from the other side. They can see the bodies of the Egyptians that are washed up on the shoreline on the other side. And yet they're standing there full of life and free. And that day, God saved the Israelites from the Egyptians. And when the Israelites saw the great power and strength of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, it says they feared the Lord. They stood in awe and reverence. I mean, this is a reverent moment. This is not hooting and hollering and high fives and fist pumps and chest bumps on the other side. This is a quiet, this is a million quiet people. Standing in awe, standing in reverence as they look on the other side, looking at what should have killed them all, what should have destroyed them instead is destroyed. And they're standing there in reverence. And the natural and supernatural response it says is this and they put their trust in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, this word trust is interesting, it means to be nursed. I mean, that's just what it means. And in biblical times, remember, when, when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, the daughter said, well, I know a nurse who can take care of him until he's old enough to be on his own. It just happened to be his mother. Well, there were actually women who would nurse children. And so the idea here of trust is that this is a vulnerable child who doesn't have what it takes to make it on their own. They're vulnerable This child relies on care, on protection, on the provision of a nurse or a parent to care for their basic needs. I don't know about you, but when we brought our kids home, we didn't throw them in the crib and say, listen, we're busy people. Look after yourself. There's food in the fridge, right? There's clothes in the drawer. Like, you know, there's toys that you'll never play with. Like, just help yourself. Make yourself at home. We didn't do that. In fact, Most of my generation went into helicopter mode at that point, right? Everybody gets a trophy, nobody gets hurt, no one says anything, right? All that stuff. Trust. As a result of this difficult encounter, Israel learned 
that God would take care of them. They learned that. That God's going to protect them. That God's going to provide for them. Now we see later on they forget that lesson like all of us. We have to learn these things over and over. But in this moment they understood that God can meet their needs when they look to Him. And so it didn't seem like a good idea at the time. But now looking back they have that aha moment where they realize God can be trusted. So let's talk about us this morning. If we're going to go from where we currently are to where God is leading us, it's going to require trusting God. And I think there are three insights that I want to focus on about complete trust in this passage that we see reflected here that I think is important for us to see. The first is in terms of of backtracking. And I'll say this to you. Going backwards is often necessary for moving forward. Going backwards is often necessary to moving forward. And perhaps the best way to appreciate the value of going backwards in the process of moving forward is to consider a simple illustration of the playground swing, right? The momentum to move forward on a playground swing is built up by first going backwards. If you don't go backwards, you can't go forward. And when you're in the forward position, all you can see is the sky and the clouds. But when you come back, you gain perspective. You see what's in front of you. You see, you see everything that's, that's coming as you're, as you're going into it. And that perspective is important. And so the point I'm making is this. To have success on a swing, the backward movement is critically important to the forward movement. Now, if it were up to us, I certainly know if it was up to me, Most of us would pick a pain-free life. I mean, who's going to pick a life of pain? We would pick a pain-free life. We want it to be challenge-free, obstacle-free, straight line forward, shortest distance between two points. That's what we want. But God knows that this kind of life eliminates the necessity of trusting God in our lives. Because if there is no challenge in our lives, then we're okay. We have it under control. We can do this ourselves. We can do whatever needs to be done. Who needs God? But God knows that life is not pain-free. No one knows better than God the impact of broken humanity and sinfulness on His creation. No one knows better than God that life is not pain-free and challenge-free and obstacle-free. He sees the brokenness of His creation. He sees it, and He is doing everything necessary to redeem it. And that's the moment we as believers live for. That moment when Jesus returns and restores God's creation back to its intention. God knows we can't do this on our own. There's too much sin. There's too much sickness. There's too much brokenness and pain. There's too many evil people and broken people. God knows we can't do this on our own. That we need Him desperately in our lives. That complete trust in God is absolutely necessary. And so God allows. But I also see here that God even orchestrates God uses the enemy in seasons of hardship, wow, to develop us to that point of complete trust in Him. I don't know about you, but I've had seasons 
when I feel like I'm going backwards instead of moving forward. Anyone ever felt like that? Yeah. I'm supposed to be moving forward right now, but I feel like I'm going backwards. I'm losing ground. I'm not gaining ground. I'm losing ground. I ended up somewhere different than where I set out to go. I ended up somewhere different than what I expected. Life turned out different than I hoped for. I had an interesting moment this week that I think fits in here. But it's a good story, so I'll make it fit. Jen and I came home from work on Tuesday, and there was a Canada Post sticker on our front door. So upon close examination, I noticed it was a parcel, not a letter. A parcel. And then it had my name on it. I thought, there's a parcel for me. And I thought, I didn't order anything. What could this be? And I thought for a minute, did I pull a Clark Griswold and forget a package that I purchased for Jen for Christmas that didn't come and didn't realize? And I thought, nah, the chances of that happening are pretty slim. It's not that. And I thought, I wonder... Did someone in my family back home, were they thinking of me? They put a package together of all my favorite stuff. And they sent it to me as a surprise. I mean, it is February, the month of love. And I thought, it could be that. And then I went way out there and I thought, is it possible that someone from my congregation bought me a little something? And had it mailed directly to my house. God, there must be one that likes me enough to do that. So I'm, I have to wait 24 hours for it to show up at the local post office, right? That's what the paper said. So I went to bed with visions of sugar plums dancing in my head. I mean, this is going to be great. I mean, it's a package. I remember when I was a student in Bible college, my mom would send packages and she'd send them express so the fresh bread was still fresh and I'd have to lock my doors while starving students pounded at my door. I thought, oh, those were good days of packages. I mean, who doesn't love getting a package, right? I thought, this is, this is going to be good. I got to the post office. There was only two people ahead of me. And I thought, this is great. There's only two people. How many of you know that two people at the post office can be a painfully long process. Like at one point, I got road rage in, this, in the lineup. And I thought, if this lady just doesn't get her letter and stamp and move out of the way, I don't know if I can stand the anticipation any longer. And so finally, I handed in my stuff. I showed my ID. And she came up with this puffy, padded, yellow envelope. And I guess I spoke out loud because I said, I wonder what that is. And she goes, oh, uh, you bought a toilet from Costco? There's a recall on the hoses. This is your hose replacement. (laughs) Hundreds of people are getting them, but they're making you come in and sign for them. By the way, thanks for nothing. You know, sometimes in life, we're expecting something good, a nice gift, and we end up with a toilet hose. We do. When our expectations are not met, when what we believe we were promised doesn't work out, when it appears that we're moving backwards and not forwards, we view it as failure. This is failure. This is disappointment. And further, God has let me down. But you know, even though we view it like that, 
God views it as momentum to move us forward. It's the backward swing to move us forward. I can't wait to see what plans God has for that hose. If you need one, let me know. I got one. Secondly, partnership. Victory over the enemy requires a partnership with God. When we're facing intimidating circumstances, when things seem hopeless, when we feel helpless, when things appear out of control, when failure appears absolutely certain, we often respond in desperation just like we see in this passage. Sometimes it's like the Israelites. We cry out to God. God, make it stop. Make it go away. Intervene. And then when they keep coming, our crying out can quickly shift to blaming and questioning. God, why is this happening to me? Why aren't you making it stop, God? Why, why have you abandoned me, Lord? If you loved me, God, how could you let this be happening to me? I should never have followed you. I should have just stayed where I was. I should never have trusted you. All that stuff I've said, all that stuff that you promised, and right now it doesn't seem like you're doing any of it. I'm crying out and they're still coming. Well, sometimes we're like Moses. And we say, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to be really spiritual. I'm just going to wait for God to show up and fix it all. But the truth is, as much as it's only God that can lead our lives through the varying season, doing nothing is not what he's called us to. And so thirdly, we need to do what God told Moses to do. I've already given you what you need. My presence is always with you. My spirit dwells in you. My power is within you. I lead you. I guide you. Don't just sit there and do nothing. Act in the power and the authority of my spirit that I've given to you. You do your part. Live in obedience to me. Take the action that I require of you. Do what you can do. And then leave what is beyond you to me. That's how this works. I do my part. You do yours. Now, we experience challenges in many areas. I mean, it's not uncommon today for people to be struggling in their marriages. And we can take those different approaches, right? Right? Crying out to God, oh God, please fix this idiot I married. Like, God, you got to do something. You got to intervene here. You got to save us. You got you to fix this. You got to change this. You got you to restore this. And then when it just keeps getting bad, it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know what? I should have probably never trusted you in the first place. You know, God, if you really cared about me and this marriage and my family, you, you would have acted by now. And then some people take the really spiritual approach. Well, you know what? My marriage is really bad, but I'm not going to do anything. On some miraculous night, I'm going to go to bed with a frog and I'm going to wake up with a prince. Because in the night, God is going to work a miracle. So I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to keep existing until God comes and fixes it all. That God says, no. There's stuff that you can do. Don't just sit back and wait for me to swoop in and save your family. There's stuff you can do and learn and, and, and grow in and and compromise, and surrender, and and work on together. You need to do what you can do, and then you you need to let me do what you can't do. Well, the same is true, I've seen it with employment. 
Some people lose their job. They're crying out to God. They can't get a new one. They keep praying, but it's not happening. And time goes off. And whatever little bit of severance they got ran out. And all of a sudden, their, their savings ran out. And, and their parents' savings ran out. Or whoever else's. And they're, they're, it's hard. And we can, in those moments, start questioning God. Like, God, seriously, are you not there for me? How'd you let this happen to me? Don't you see what this is doing to my family? Or maybe we can be like, I've met people who just say, you know what? I'm just going to sit back. And I'm going to watch Netflix, and I'm going to trust God to bring me my new job. He'll open the door. And God says, no. Run off some resumes. Do some networking. Meet some people. Get out there. And as you're doing that, I'm going to work in that, and we're going to do this together. Well, sometimes it's the same with our kids. We all bring them home from the hospital with the highest hopes and anticipation and dreams. And it doesn't take long. Someone said, being a parent is like having your heart walk around outside your body. It is, isn't it? It's even worse than that. And it's all going okay for a while, but then the wheels come off and you got a mess on your hands and your kids are all messed up. There's problems and choices they're making and it's painful and maybe it's illness-based and maybe it's rebellion-based and maybe there's things coming into your life and family that you never dreamed would come into your life and family and you don't know what to do with it. Well, the first thing we do is obviously cry out to God. We go through those stages. I've been there myself, crying desperately to God and it just seems like the enemy's getting closer. And then you start getting a little ticked at God. You know, how dare you? I've given my life... You know, I've served you, I've been faithful, and you, you repeat all the words of Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, and all those who had the breakdown too. Right? And then sometimes we hit that moment where it's like, I'm just going to be still and know that you are God. I'm going to pretend this doesn't exist. I have seen that so much in families. When people don't know what to do, you know what they do? Nothing. When, when garbage comes home and you don't know what to do with it, you don't know how to talk about it, you don't know how to deal with it, the number one option for most people is let's pretend it doesn't exist. And maybe if we pretend long enough that it doesn't exist, it'll fix itself. Has anyone ever been successful with that? I don't think so. God says, no. I care about your family. I care about your kids. I love your kids more than you love your kids. I want your kids to be healthy and whole. We're in a battle here with the devil himself. So there's things I need you to do. And one of those things might actually be loving unconditionally, by the way. I've said many times, if the church of Jesus Christ could stop dealing with issues and start seeing people, we'd have a lot more accomplished for the kingdom of God. And so we do what we can do. When God gives us something to say and gives us wisdom, we function in that. When God says, keep your mouth shut. Sometimes God has to tell me. Sometimes my wife does, but sometimes God has. Sometimes God speaks to me through my wife. Stop. Don't say that. Because that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not right. God says, no, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to say. I know you feel like doing this right now, but don't do that right now. This is not the best thing to do. It's a partnership with the Spirit of God. He wants to partner with us. God has given us His presence. He's given us His Spirit. He wants to partner 
us to partner with him in seeing victory in our lives. And the truth is, crying out against God isn't helpful. It gets a lot off your chest. God's not offended by it. But it comes a point where you just got to stop doing it and move on. Crying out to God is for an extended period of time to the point it gets dysfunctional is not helpful. Doing nothing while we wait for God to act isn't really that helpful for us either. But learning to partner with God, seeing his presence and power in our lives, working in tandem with him, now that's life-changing. That's what he was trying to teach the Israelites, and he's also trying to teach that to us. And finally, opportunity. Hardships are opportunities for building trust in God. Now, I didn't read that on the sign on the roof of my dentist's office. And there's a lot of those signs on my dentist's office. And if you go to my dentist, you know what I'm talking about. And I can see smiles in this room because some of you have my dentist. Hardships are opportunities for building trust in God. Now, given the choice, the Israelites would not have turned back. They wouldn't have. They would not have had to face the terror of the Egyptian army closing in. All that would have been unnecessary. But they would have missed a significant moment of learning about who God was in their lives, and most importantly, that God could be trusted. And so when they felt trapped between the army and the Red Sea, they couldn't see the value of this experience. They weren't there crying out saying, God, I don't know how this is going to end, but I just want to thank you right now because I know it's going to end really well. They couldn't see it. When they're experiencing the miraculous power of God as they cross through the pathway on the dry land in the middle of the sea while looking over their shoulders to see that not only are they going through, but the Egyptians are following them, they couldn't see it. But when they reached the other side, when God had destroyed the enemies, when God had put a barrier between them and the danger and the sea closed up and the bodies lay on the beach, Then and then alone in that moment did they understand what had just happened. God had led them. God had intervened. God had brought them victory. And looking back, they could see it now. They trusted God. Mission accomplished. God had created this opportunity as a trust builder And now they trusted. And because we know the rest of the story, we know that he's going to have to do this over and over again as he will with us. Hindsight is a great gift. I've made some mistakes in my day. I wouldn't have made them if I had known them what I saw later when I look back. Could have done some things different than I did. Hindsight's a great gift. Standing on the mountaintop and surveying the land is a great place to be. Because from those vantage points, we can see the full picture that we couldn't see in the moment. Folks, humankind longs for happiness, fulfillment, purpose, and meaning. And God knows that these things are only going to be possible for us when we learn to completely trust our lives to Him. And so He not only allows, but He creates moments where we're drawn into greater trust in Him. And this is a difficult process, but it's very rewarding. So we have to ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me from this? What is it you're trying to show me? What is it that I need to learn from this? 
God, how are you wanting to change me through this? Certainly you must want to do some work in my life through this. What is it you, you want to do? God, what's the bigger picture value of this season that I find myself in right now? Because I don't see any value in it. I don't see any point in it. I don't see any purpose in it. God, what, what, what's the value? And then we ask God not to waste this painful season of our lives. Don't waste this, God. God, make it count. Make it count. Use it. God, don't waste one part of this. Let me receive the full benefit of this opportunity. Folks, there is much to be learned from the bigger themes of Scripture. As we look back over and we see, we learn that God works in all things for our good and for His glory from the Apostle Paul and many other New Testament writers. We learn that God takes what the enemy intends for evil and uses it for his good from the life of Joseph. We learn that it's not coincidence that we find ourselves in difficult situations, but perhaps, just perhaps, that God has brought us here for such a time as this. We learn that from Esther. We learn that the cross must come before the crown. We learn that from Jesus. And in response, we trust Him. We trust Him. We learn to be His children. We learn to be dependent on Him to care for us when we are unable to care for ourselves. Willing to navigate the painful seasons because we trust Him that we will arrive safely on the other side and there will be a moment at some point when all of it will make sense. I'm going to invite our worship team back. If we're going to get from here to there, if we're going to get from where we are to where God is leading us, whether it's in our individual lives or as a church, it's going to take complete trust in God because we can't make it on our own. Our culture tells us we can. There are more courses and books that you can read and take that tell you that you can't. But without God, we can't do it. We can't. It's going to take complete trust in God because we can't make it on our own. We need to experience the seasons of going backwards so we can gain the momentum to move forward. We need to join with God in a partnership Us doing our part, allowing God to do His. And we need to see hardship as an opportunity to build trust. And if we can reach a point of complete trust, we will successfully move from where we currently are to where God is leading us. Would you stand with me this morning? I know it's hard. I get it. I may not understand your circumstances. I may not have gone through what you're going through. I may not have been where you are, but I know what it's like to go through a tough season, to feel like you're going backwards, to feel like there is no hope. I've been there. We've all been there. And in there, we learn to trust God. And my challenge to you this morning is would you take that and would you surrender it to Him and say, God, I'm going to give this to you. 
Whether it's my marriage or my kids or my job or my health or, or the grief that I'm dealing with or whatever else it is, God, I'm going to give that to you. I want to work with you in this so that you can do what only you can do, which is bring something good out of it. I encourage you to make that your attitude in prayer this morning. God, take it. My good and the bad. My pain and my joy, I give it all to you. Use it. Use it for your glory. For my benefit, use it, Lord.